The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of the Israel Project. Why is global anti-Semitism on the rise? Who is to blame? And what can we do about it? Can education really make a difference? Or are we doomed to continue the status quo? And perhaps worse. Can one be anti-Israel without being anti-Semitic? All this and more on today's episode of Tipping Point. Welcome to Tipping Point, the podcast on all things Israel. I'm your host, Talia Dekel, and this episode is being recorded on Monday, June 24th, so things might have changed by the time you hear it. Remember, you can find all of our previous episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. One would think that after more than seven decades after the Holocaust, talk about anti-Semitism would be limited to an academic historic conversation only. But, as we are all painfully aware of, the hatred of Jews is alive and kicking in North America, in Europe, in the Arab world, and elsewhere. American Jews are still licking their wounds after two lethal synagogue attacks in the space of six months, among them the most deadly massacre of Jews in U.S. history. So, what's being done on the ground to counter this? One method is through education. My guest today is at the forefront of efforts to empower scholars and communities to combat anti-Semitism and racism. Dr. Charles Ashil Small is the founding executive director of the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy. His organization cooperates with Ivy League universities, bringing serious seminars to tackle these issues to students in the most influential institutions. So first of all, Charles, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. So before we talk about how to deal with the situation, let's start by understanding the depth of the problem. It's 2019. The Western world has advanced light years in the fields of human rights, recognition of minorities. But for some reason, it seems that we're not doing so well with the Jews. So how widespread is anti-Semitism, and what are the main geographic hubs in which it is nurtured? So it's a good question. It's a, you know, the, the answer is complex, so I'll try to be succinct. I would say anti-Semitism is pervasive. I think for decades, for far too long, the West, Western leaders, intellectuals, the human rights community turned a blind eye to political Islam. Not Islam, not Muslims, but radical political Islam, which is a social reactionary movement, which uses anti-Semitism at, at its very core of its ideology. But for far too long, people sort of excuse the criticism of Israel from emanating from the Islamic world, the so-called Islamic world, and gave it a pass. And now, as we get more familiar with the Muslim Brotherhood and their ideology, and while they were focusing on demonizing Jews in Israel, they actually turned on their own Muslim brothers and sisters and have created chaos throughout the Middle East, throughout the Muslim world. And now with the refugee crisis, um, I think the threat not only to the Islamic world and not only to the Jews and to the Israelis, but now to European democracy and stability is becoming significant. And I think our acquiescence and our silence to political Islam, uh, especially on the left, the left perceived this sort of reactionary social movement as being anti-Western hegemony, anti-Western colonialism, so the left, in a sort of a contradictory way, kind of lashed on to this anti-Western or anti-American hegemony over the Middle East, and they were also supporting uh, political Islam. So the left acquiesced or even sometimes engaged in a so-called Red-Green Alliance. Uh, so we have it from the left, we have it from political Islam, and now I think as a reaction to the migration crisis and the reaction to the instability in urban spaces in Europe, we see the beginning of the rise of nationalism and even xenophobia. There's sort of a 
an attack on the center from these three forms of anti-Semitisms or reactionary forces. And it reminds me of what Elie Wiesel said. Elie Wiesel, the uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner and the, the sort of quintessential witness to the Holocaust, he always said that anti-Semitism begins with Jews, but it never ends with Jews. That once this form of hatred is unleashed upon society, it knows no boundaries. And now we've inherited a very complex and difficult situation where anti-Semitism and the ideology of anti-Semitism is sort of in the core of the extreme Islamists, the extreme left, and the extreme right. So it's a real threat, not just to the Jews and to Israel, but very much to democracy, notions of stability, notions of citizenship, equality under one legal system. It's suddenly, suddenly becoming uh, a threat to democratic principles. Interesting. I was going to ask you what you thought of uh, uh, recent remarks by German leaders uh, in that the rise of anti-Semitism in Germany uh, was because of the rise of the far right, but clearly you think that it uh, falls within the realm of the three different groups. Right. And I think the rise of the far right is in part because of the refugee crisis, which is real and uh, significant. And the refugee crisis, in a sense, comes out of Syria, comes out of the Middle East, where the Muslim Brotherhood in places like Egypt and Libya, in the Sunni and Shiite world, this sort of uh, political Islam, which begins a hundred years ago in Egypt, uh, has spread through the Middle East. And while they blame the Jews and the Zionists and the Israelis for everything you can imagine under the sun, they were trying to create a revolution in the Middle East. And as a result, there's, it, there was a, cat a catastrophe in Iraq and later a catastrophe in Syria. Some scholars call what's happening in Syria a genocide, nearly one million people murdered, 15 million people displaced, and of course the refugee crisis in the Middle East. So by the West turning a blind eye to this uh, catastrophic reactionary social movement for too long, now, you know, in this age of globalization, there's really no escape. We're all interconnected, and I think we all have to find a really a, a deep uh, solution to this problem, because it's not a problem of the Israelis and the Jews. In fact, the Israelis, I think, can protect themselves well. But what's happening in the suburbs and on the streets of Brussels and Paris and, uh, and other uh, important capitals throughout the world? Right. So you, you talked a lot about um, reasons for why this might be happening in Europe specifically, especially if we're talking about um, the refugee crisis. So why then are we seeing, you know, constant beatings uh, of clearly Jewish men in Brooklyn till this day? Like, why is this still happening in North America? It's a good question. I mean, ultimately, I don't know if there's an answer to why it's happening in North America, why it's happening in Europe. Ultimately, why does anti-Semitism exist? I don't know, maybe there's even a metaphysical reason for it. <laughs> But I think you, you begin to see the upsurge and the creeping of the problems of Europe into North America. It's, it's arrived in Canada. I think Canada was probably 15 years behind Europe. The issues arrived in Canada about, uh, say, roughly 10 years ago, and now we see problems uh, arising in the United States with uh, political Islam, uh, the political discourse, even in the mainstream political discourse, discourse coming out of policymakers in Congress and in the Senate, stating some of the most pernicious anti-Semitic tropes in history, is now becoming part of the conversation in the United States, in the media, in academia. So in a sense, it's not surprising if we engage political Islam in Egypt and Libya and in Iran and other parts of the world this social movement that is not only anti-Semitic, but it's sexist, it's homophobic, it's anti-democratic, it's anti-minority rights. If we tolerate it in Gaza, if we tolerate it in Tehran, if we tolerate it in Cairo, why in the age of globalization 
are we shocked that it's beginning to happen in the United States? And what's you know fascinating and at the same time frightening, political Islam took literally the, the protocols of the elders of Zion. It took propaganda that was key to the Nazi ideology, to the extermination of Jews, the justification of removing Jews from European society, ghettoizing them, and then engaging the final solution. Those words and ideas of the protocols of the elders of Zion is at the core of the Muslim Brotherhood's ideology and of political Islam. So why, if we tolerate that in various parts of the world, including the United States, including institutions in the media, including our universities, which is the most sensitive and important part of a democratic society, it's where our future leaders come out of, if we tolerate it there, why are we surprised that it's coming to our society in, in political discourse and now even in violent acts? Right. I think uh, Bernard Lewis has an entire chapter specifically on that process. Let's get to the solution itself or to what can be done uh, as, as much as we can. What is it that you're doing specifically and what are your thoughts? So what we do at ISGAP, the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy, we're trying basically to fight antisemitism on the battlefield of ideas. And I think to fight anti-Semitism, there's urgent needs. There's, uh, we need the IDF on the northern border and because Hezbollah is there and they have this ideology to, uh, that it's not only emanates from the Nazi ideology, but they, they call for the destruction of the state of Israel and they use the most horrific forms of anti-Semitic uh, tropes in their ideology to galvanize their, their military. So there's immediate uh, problems, and I think in a sense through education, this is probably a generational war. So what we do is we have high-caliber seminars at top-tier universities around the world, places like uh, La Sapienza University, the Sorbonne. Uh, we've had programs at Harvard and Columbia and Stanford and Chile and Argentina and Ukraine. And at Oxford University, we have a summer program where we invite professors from around the world and we teach them issues about issues of anti-Semitism, and they use their expertise to incorporate it into courses for credit. So they come to our summer institute to create courses on, on contemporary anti-Semitism, which has been a taboo in the academy, and they bring it to their home university and teach for credits. Why has it been a taboo? Because I think, in a sense, contemporary anti-Semitism has always been uh, unpopular. Is it admitting that there's a problem that we don't want to admit? I think in the academy, to look at the history of Christian anti-Semitism, to look at racist anti-Semitism, to look at the Holocaust, is acceptable. But to look at the demonization of who Jews are as a, as a people and their connection to Israel, I think this is a problem. Because on the radical, politically correct, so-called left, to defend Zionism is problematic. Israel is a problematic entity, it's colonial, it's racist, even apartheid. And to be perceived as defending that entity is, is very difficult. So I think that's why the academy has been basically silent on contemporary forms of anti-Semitism. So when we started this program, there were literally no courses on contemporary anti-Semitism in the academy. Now we have 170 graduates and 90% of them are teaching courses for credit. And this year our program is expanding and we're expecting 100 scholars and residents. So hopefully at the end of this summer we'll have... Uh, nearly 300, 270 professors teaching courses for Amazing. credit. So I can assume that the students of your programs, um, even the ones that go on to become teachers themselves, are probably not the ones that hold the racist views against the Jews. So what can be done to get to those who do, who really do espouse these dangerous views and are ultimately the ones committing acts of violence against them? 
So, so some of the professors who come to our program are very critical of what we're presenting at the beginning. But I think through our program, when we illustrate the profound contradictions that exist in the existing literature and how political Islam and the three waves of jihad is part of the colonial slave trade and that there was racism that was being used by colonialists and anti-Semitism, we kind of unpack the history of anti-Semitism and racism. Uh, we look at the ideology of political Islam and how the left acquiesced to it. So I think many professors kind of change their views if they're presented with serious scholarship and serious facts. It's not propaganda, but it's high-caliber scholarship. So I think we can make inroads, and we have. And some of our critics are now actually teaching on our program, and they're amazing professors. So we, we through high-caliber scholarship and presenting facts, I believe that people... Uh, it's sort of a blind spot. And when people become aware of the contemporary form of anti-Semitism and how the demonization of Jewish peoplehood is not only tolerated, but I would even say promoted in our best universities and in the media of record, they, they, they I think, are shocked and they try to grapple with it, and, it's, uh, and they do. You know, people searching for truth and are open to education and ideas uh, get it. Okay. So let's expand a little bit about what anti-Semitism actually is. How do you define it? How do you measure it? Um, so I think the IRA definition is good. I think the, um, there was a, the London Protocol and in 2009, I believe. Uh, the British Parliament adopted a definition of anti-Semitism and some 40 countries um, signed on to it. And then there was the Ottawa Protocol following, by, uh, following a year later. So these definitions are very helpful. And they include that, uh, that if Jewish people are... Um, held responsible for Israeli policy. Uh, that's a form of anti-Semitism. The, the denial of the Jewish right to self-determination in their homeland is a form of anti-Semitism. So I think these definitions are helpful, and they're, they're beginning to, to sort of permeate law and legislation around the world, which is good. And in our research, um, we, Ed Kaplan and I wrote an article in 2006 looking at the correlation between classical forms of anti-Semitism and what we defined as Israel bashing. And what we discovered was that the levels of anti-Semitism and Israel bashing were relatively low, at least lower than our expectations in 10 European countries. But what was, what was staggering is those who are is defined as Israel bashers in our criteria, they are 13 times more likely to be anti-Semitic in the classical sense. So not everybody supporting the BDS movement, for example, or denying Israel's right to exist is necessarily anti-Semitic, but those people are 13 times more likely to be anti-Semitic than the average in their, in their countries. So the correlation is off the charts. If we bought a bottle of water that was 13 times more likely, or a company was selling water that was 13 times more likely to cause cancer than other forms of bottled water, those bottled waters would, would be removed from the shelves immediately and there'd probably be a national inquiry how this water was being sold to the public. So that correlation is very strong between denying Israel's right to exist and classical forms of anti-Semitism. And what's relevant is that we know that anti-Semitism is not just a problem of the Jewish people. Once this type of hatred is unleashed, it knows no boundaries and is profoundly destructive. My family is originally from Montreal, and my mother is a very smart, wise woman, but she started having a family. She got married at 17 and had her children from 19 years old. 
So she didn't have a formal education. But I sent my parents the article, and I went home for Shabbat dinner, and they have large uh, Shabbat dinners often. So I came in from New Haven, and I sat at my parents' table. There was about 20 people at the table. And at the end of dinner, my mother asked everybody to be quiet, and she said, can you please explain the article? I tried to read it, but it was too you know, mathematical and difficult to follow. Can you explain it? So I basically explained what I just said now. The, I showed the correlation between anti-Semitism and Israel bashing. And then she asked in front of the 20 guests, you know, how long did you work on the article for? So I said, I worked on it for about 18 months. So she turned to her guest at the table. She said, my son, the professor. It took him 18 months to prove what everybody here already knows. <laughs> so she, she keeps me humble. But the importance is that to prove something scientifically that many of us know and experience is very important. And I think this helped to pave the way for, for the legislation and the definitions that are now emerging. So it was an important academic piece, even though many of us who are on the receiving end of this hatred understand it only too well. Of course. Yeah, well, Jewish cynicism never uh, hurts <laughs> <laughs> to let, in, yeah. lighten up a situation. So is that correlation strong enough for you to agree with perhaps uh, the conclusion that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs drew, which is that anti-Zionism is, in fact, today's anti-Semitism? Uh, I agree with it 100%. I would argue, however, that there's three forms of anti-Semitisms, with an S in the plural. There's the old Christian forms of anti-Semitism. There's the old racist forms of anti-Semitism, which in liberal spaces and universities and the media of record in the West is pretty much understood and I think condemned. But the most dominant form of anti-Semitism, the attack on Jewish peoplehood, the attack against Israel, the attack against uh, Jewish connections, uh, cultural, religious, historical, political connections to Israel is the most dominant form of anti-Semitism and the most dangerous. And I think this motivates uh, people to act in the most pernicious ways. And I think that New York Times article about a month ago was the perfect illustration of contemporary anti-Semitism. You have this image of... Uh, the Donald, cartoon. Yeah, of yeah. Donald Trump being mm -hmm. led by Netanyahu as a dog. And you have the New York Times publishing it, which is the so-called liberal press. The same day the foreign minister Zarif of Iran was saying that uh, Netanyahu is tricking... Uh, the United States into a war. This is the old anti-Semitic canard. So you have it from the left, you have it from the Islamists. And just hours after the cartoon was published, you have the attack near San Diego, where somebody enters into a right. church and is right. a neo-Nazi. And that cartoon and those that 24-hour period, I think, illustrates the profound challenge that we as people who believe in democratic societies are facing uh, throughout the world. As an organization, also, we talked about that day specifically and, and looked at those two forms of anti-Semitism, but uh, Zarif's comments actually slipped yeah. my mind. Yeah. Interesting. So do you think that this is a new reality we're just going to have to accept, or do you see change anytime soon? I think we should never accept it. Uh, it would be a tragic mistake if anybody accepts it, a tragic mistake for notions of Western liberal democracy and equality under one legal system. Um, but I think there's a reality that is, um, it's not increasing in a linear level. It's almost like a snowball. I think things are beginning to speed up um, in terms of anti-Semitism and sort of the attack by various social movements on the center, on the political center. And 
I think more and more people are getting it. More and people, more and more people understand that this is a serious issue. Um, for example, at Oxford University, where we have our program, during the first year there was a lot of opposition to it. Uh, six years ago, people were trying to close it down. Today, uh, you know, even so-called liberal academics and scholars realize there's an issue, and there's a lot of interest and support in our program uh, within Oxford. So there's some progress in terms of people understanding that this is a major issue, not just for the Jewish community or Israel, but for Europe and North America and democratic ideas. And at the same time, uh, we can see in the world, in the, in, in the Islamic world, among the extreme kind of white nationalist, right-wing kind of characters, and the extreme left, that more and more people, I think, are also uh, becoming more active and more vocal. And the threats... Um, are more and more significant. You have Corbyn waiting in the wings to become prime minister, and he has a he has a chance to be a prime minister. Some people say it's a significant chance. Other people minimizes it. But nevertheless, that discourse, which was on the fringe uh, not too long ago, ten years ago, his anti-Semitic discourse is mainstream, and he's getting a lot of support from important uh, constituents in the UK and beyond. And if he became prime minister, what would be the implications for that? in the United Kingdom, in Europe, and throughout the world. Right. So Strength, the, Strengthening you know, people in leadership positions with similar roles. Exactly. Sorry, with similar views. So you actually spoke last year at the Muslim World League Conference. Having said everything that you said about Islamist views on Jews, I would be interested to know what the goal of the forum was, what your contribution to it was, and what you learned from it. It's a good question. It's fascinating. So I was one of, I believe, the first uh, Jewish-Israeli persons that was approached by the Muslim World League to, to speak to Muhammad Alisa, who's the new leader of the Muslim World League. The Muslim World League, it was run by Yosef Kawadawi, who's the head of the Muslim Brotherhood. And it was the address for propagating, spreading the most pernicious forms of anti-Semitism around the world for decades. And... Um, Interestingly enough, uh, Yosef Kawadawi uh, was courted by people like Corbyn and um, Ken Livingston and uh, George Galloway. Uh, he started Islamic studies at Oxford University, just to name some of the sort of the infiltration of this movement in academia around the world. Um, that, that could be a whole show and could be a series of books and articles. So this was a, this is a bad, bad address. And when they reached out to me, I decided to go and speak. And apparently, I use the word apparently deliberately, uh, Dr. Muhammad Alisa is the new leader. He removed Yosef Kaudawi from the organization. And he and his associates uh, are changing the leadership to be more, I think, with a sense of rapprochement between the Muslim World League, Saudi Arabia, and the United States, and I think even to some extent, certainly the Jewish community in the West, and I would say to some extent with Israel. And why? I think these, from, this is my reading, and I, it's my opinion for whatever it's worth. I think that the Saudis realize that there's um, a threat to the kingdom from the Muslim Brotherhood and also from Iran. And in a sense, I think the West and the Israelis, have, we have common uh, concern. So I think the rapprochement is a part of that. He's spoken out against anti-Semitism. I believe he's visiting Auschwitz and he's speaking out against it uh, publicly and significantly, which is a, a breath of fresh air. Um, so I think for the short and medium term, the connection with, the, with Israel, it will be good. Can 
From an Islamic perspective, can there be a true recognition of the self-determination of Jewish people on so-called, in quotations, Islamic land? Can Muslims truly accept Israel from an, Islam, from an Islamic point of view? It seems they are accepting Israel from a political and a geostrategic point of view, which is good, but how deep it is, I'm not sure. And I was, the, I believe, the first Israeli and Jewish person that addressed their um, annual conference in New York. I spoke to 700 Muslims from around the world, and I was a keynote speaker on the stage with um, Muhammad Alisa and the, uh, the Secretary General of the Organization of Islamic Countries, the Grand Mufti of Egypt, and it was a really, it was a serious group of people. And I spoke about the dangers of anti-Semitism to the Islamic world, and I argued that the biggest victim of anti-Semitism are actually Muslims. Because as these reactionary forces blame Israel and the Zionists and the Jews for all these uh, crazy you know, conspiracies, um, Muslims in Syria, Iraq, and around the world are being brutalized by these reactionary movements. Um, so it was interesting. So I think some people seemed open to the discussions. They were very gracious and treated me very in a very welcoming way. You know, some people were not as impressed, I would say, <laughs> judging on their facial reactions. But, but it was it was very it was very interesting. And I think there's an opportunity. Um, I would say at least for the medium term of significant rapprochement with Israel and its neighbors. I think it's beginning to happen. And we'll see. We'll see how things turn out. But uh, I think the the ultimate question is, can they really truly accept, in a sense, the Jews are the only other in the Islamic world that has self-determination. And I, I think the jury is out, and it would be a, it would be difficult for them to do it. Probably. Mm-hmm. When we see the Israeli government forming relationships with uh, controversial figures in Europe, what does that say about Israel and its its own work to combat anti-Semitism, its, uh, its understandings of the past. What are your thoughts? Uh, so I think at one level there's a real politic and there's a need for the state of Israel, the government of Israel, to have relations with European governments and European parties. And I think it's happening, you know, Austria jumps to mind and other places in Europe where the Israelis have good relations with some on the right of the political equation. And I think it's a, it's a dangerous game. If you think of the, um, the issue of Poland, when uh, a representative speaking on behalf of Yad Vashem in the name of sort of negotiating with Poland over its uh, horrific uh, laws curtailing free speech on, regarding the Holocaust. And the restitution issues. And the restitution and uh, the, the anti-Semitic canards that are coming out of the Polish leadership. And you have people negotiating history. On behalf of the uh, on behalf of Yad Vashem and the Israeli government, it, it's it, it was a profound mistake, and this this really injures. I think it injures Israel in the long term, and it really makes life in the diaspora for Jewish communities in Europe more difficult. And I think it's one thing to have uh, various interests that you serve by reaching out to governments and political organizations. I understand. I get that. But to really kind of sell uh, our history for that is just, there, sh- there has to be red lines. And I think that was really kind of pushing things too far. And once you open the door to that, I mean, where where do you stop? And you can see the Polish government in a very um, kind of ugly way is sort of using this uh, to their advantage. And it opens the door for historical revisionism. And this is not the time to do it. And I think we should never do things like that. 
Well, it wouldn't be the first time that countries have denied parts of their history, so I wouldn't be surprised about anything these days. This has been a fascinating conversation. Dr. Charles Ashel Small, founding executive director of the Institute for Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy. It was a pleasure speaking with you pleasure. today. Pleasure. Thank you for the honor. Thank you. I'm Talia Deco. This has been Tipping Point, and I look forward to our next episode.